We'll be done that psalm shorter than we'll be done this psalm, believe it or not. And this week we're in Psalm 88, so take your Bible and turn there, if you will, please. Psalm 88. While you're turning there, I will uh, just like to say, if you've never been to the Lakewood Country Club for lunch, uh, we would love for you to come. And uh, about once a month, once every two months, we go to the Lakewood Country Club as a group and just have lunch. And you can get breakfast from seven ninety-five, and, and lunches are a little bit more than that. But uh, anyway, that'll be next week. Okay, we're in Psalm eighty-eight. Someone uh, called Psalm eighty-eight the saddest of all the psalms, and it is. I've never read a psalm that is filled with such uh, lament as the writer. Uh, expresses his uh, sadness and his frustration uh, from experiencing a long uh, time of illness. And it looks like there's no relief in sight. And as you read through this psalm, you're going to be able to feel his pain. There's sometimes when I announce about someone being sick in the class and it catches you off guard, you and you sort of feel the pain that that person is going through. You're going to feel the pain of the psalmist in Psalm 88, and you're going to hear his voice of despair. And so when I was reading through the psalms this week and prepared this lesson, I thought of the many people in our class who are very much in the same situation as the psalmist, You've had a prolonged illness, or you know somebody in the class who's had a prolonged illness. Now, I'm not talking about a week or two or a month. Or, I'm talking about a year or two or more than that. Maybe years. And there seems to be no relief in sight. No signs of improvement. And that's exactly what this psalm is about. So I've called this the psalm of perpetual trouble. Or a psalm for the chronically ill. And for those of our members who are not here and they are chronically ill and they've been this way for months and listen to this psalm or watch it on the video, uh, this is a psalm for them, a psalm for the critically or chronically ill. Okay? Now, first of all, I want you to notice the superscription. Okay, the superscription are the words right above the psalm. And I want you to notice five things about it. Number one, it's called a psalm. Often we think of psalms as psalms of praise. This is just the opposite. If I wanted to categorize this psalm, I would put it in the blues category. The psalmist is singing the blues, you know? And he is he's down in the dumps. So that's a song, but it's not a song of what we think of praise. It's just the opposite. It's a lament, a song of lament. Okay? Second of all, I want you to notice in the superscription that... The singers are identified. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah. And this probably, and the, 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 the sons of Korah were the choir members. And we know this from looking back in First Chronicles, that these were a group of choir members who sang in the tabernacle and in the temple during worship time. So these are the ones who are going to be singing the song. Notice also, we... Uh, See the composer of the song. Notice it's to the chief musician. This is the one who uh, will write the music for the words and will arrange the song. So he is the he is the musician, the composer, and the arranger of the song. 
Next you'll notice the tune of the song. It's called Mehalath Leannath, which means on account of sickness. That's the title of the tune. The title of the tune is on account of sickness. That's what it, the name of the tune is. You know, when you look in your hymn book, you'll notice that there are lyrics to a hymn, but there's also a tune to the hymn, and the tune often has a title. So, the Christmas song, What Child Is This? That is to the tune of Green Sleeves. And when you look at the hymn book, you'll see the tune, Green Sleeves. That's the name of the tune. This song has, this music has a tune. And this is what it is regarding sickness. Or, I saw last night they were doing a special on the song Amazing Grace. And, you know, John Newton wrote the words to Amazing Grace, but the tune is New Britain. <laughs> That's the name of the tune. It's being sung to the tune of New Britain. So here we see the tune of the psalm. It's actually mentioned, and it means on account of sickness. And then the next thing we see is the lyricist, the one who actually writes the, music, uh, writes the words. It's a contemplation of Heman. Now I want you to watch this next word. Heman, the Ezraite. That's the guy who writes the song. Writes the song. Now, who is Heman? Uh, the name Heman is mentioned 15 times in the Old Testament. And there are a lot of people named Heman. <laughs> I'm going to give you two examples. Okay? Now, once you remember something, he's Heman the what? The Ezraite. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you the first example. I want you to turn over to 1 Kings chapter 4. You're going to have a lot of fun with this. 1 Kings chapter 4. Now, like I said, there are a lot of Hemans. I'm going to show you two or three, okay? So when you turn to 1 Kings, and that's, you know, right after Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all those books. That was the ninth book or so into the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 4. Go down to verse 30. 1 Kings 4.30. And I follow the principle that I don't read until I hear the pages, the fluttering of the pages stop. That's why I wait. Okay, ready? 1 Kings 4 and verse 30. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite and what? Heman. Now there you see Heman right there. He reigns, or he's, uh, he's a person who's a contemporary of Solomon, probably from Egypt. But notice, it doesn't say he's a Ezraite, does it? No, it says the other guy's the Ezraite. Ethan, the Ezraite, and then Heman's name follows immediately. Now that's significant, and I want to show you why that's significant. Okay? Now here's the second example. Okay? Go over to 1 Chronicles chapter 2. 1 Chronicles chapter 2. Another example of a guy named Heman. First Chronicles, and just keep on moving in your Old Testament to chapter 2. And when you get to chapter 2, I want you to look at verse 6. Okay? First Chronicles 2 and verse 6.
Okay, you got it? So look what it says. The sons of Zerah were Zimri, Ethan, and who's the next name? Heman. Now notice he's the son of who? Zerah. Now, if you take and change the E and the Z in position, what do you have? Ezra, which would make this Heman an Ezraite if this guy's name wasn't Zerah, <laughs> right? Now, what I think has happened here is, uh, remember, the superscription is not inspired. The superscription was put there by somebody who was trying to help you to understand the psalm a little bit. Uh, he knows there's a guy named Heman who isn't Ezraite in 1 Kings 4, but he's Egyptian. He wouldn't be writing the psalm. And he knows there's a Heman who's the son of Zerah, who if you just transpose the letters becomes Ezra. And somewhere along the line, when he puts down that this is written by Heman, he just calls him an Ezraite. Probably uh, a mistake on his part. But there's another place where Heman is mentioned, and that's in 1 Chronicles 25. So turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 25. Still with me on this? Am I making sense? You hope so, and I hope I'm making sense. Okay, look at verse 1. 1 Chronicles 25 and verse 1. And this is our third and last example, although we could show you 15 passages. Okay, so 1 Chronicles 25, 1 says, Moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for the service some of the sons of Asaph of, look, Heman, and goes on and so on, so forth, and Jedithun, who should prophesy with harps, stringed instruments, cymbals, and the number of the skilled men performing to their service, and goes a list, to the whole list. So here we see this Heman character and his sons are prophets. They prophesy. They prophesy one way is with instruments. That's a strange thing because we don't understand all that in today's way of thinking. Verse 4 says of Heman, the sons of Heman, and then you have those sons listed. There's Heman. Now watch this. All these were sons of Heman. Who, look how Heman is described. All these were sons of Heman, the king's what? Seer, his prophet. You see, that's what Heman is. He is the king's prophet. He was a king's seer in the words of the Lord. He prophesied God's word to exalt his horn, to exalt God's authority, to speak of God's power and God's greatness. So evidently, this guy who writes the psalm is Heman, who uh, is uh, probably you know, ministers in the tabernacle uh, under King David and Solomon. He has a prophetic uh, ability to write words and songs. Uh, that are going to be accompanied by symbols and all these instruments. And I think that's probably what we have in Psalm 84. It's a psalm written by Heman. Okay? So that's the superscription. It's not inspired, but it's meant to give us some insight into the psalm. So are you back to Psalm 88? Okay, I'm going to give you the outline. Here's how we're going to divide Psalm 88. I'm going to divide it into three sections. Okay? Verse 1 through... 9a, the first sentence in verse 9. 1 through 9a. That's section 1. Section 2 is 9b through verse 12. The second part of verse 9 through verse 12 
And the third part of the psalm, as we divide it, will be verses 13 through 18. Each section has something in common, the way it opens. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. So here we see this guy calling or crying out to God. That's how section 1 opens. Look in the middle of verse 9. Lord, I have what? Called out to you daily. See, that's basically the same thing it says in verse 1. It's a reiteration. And then notice how the third section opens in verse 13. But to you, Lord, I have what? Called out, you see. And in the morning my prayer comes to you. It talks about calling out to God at a certain time during the day. Each one of those verses opens a new section. So let's look at section number 1, which I'm going to call the psalmist continual cry to God. The psalmist continual cry to God. Look at verse 1. Here's what he says. O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Notice what he's doing. He's reminding God that his prayers have been non-stop. Now God knows that his prayers have been non-stop, but he's reminding God that he has continually pled to God for help. Notice he says, day and night he's been praying. Never time the problems that he has is not on his mind. He has, you know, agonizing days. He has sleepless nights as he's praying and crying out to God, pleading for relief. So far, uh, no answer has arrived. But he doesn't give up. When he pleads the, at night, if he's still sick in the morning, he pleads in the morning. If he's still sick throughout the day, he pleads again at night. And his prayer, I believe, is a prayer that is given in hope that God answers. Okay? And here's why I believe that. If you look at how he addresses God, he calls him Lord. Do you see that? Capital L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Jehovah or Yahweh, the God who made a covenant with Israel and promised to bless them if they would be obedient to him. So he is trusting that this covenant God will keep his agreement and meet his need. Notice also in verse 1, he calls him the God of my salvation. When you think of salvation, don't think about dying and going to heaven. Think about salvation meaning deliverance. You're the God who delivers me. Whatever the problem. Sickness, deliver me from sickness. My enemies, deliver me from my enemies. The fact that he calls him the God of my deliverance means that he expects God to deliver him, right? So I'm going to say right from the start, this is a prayer and prayers, continuous prayers, that have been offered in hope to get an answer. He's letting God know, calling him by his covenant name, that he expects an answer. God should keep his covenant. Now look at verse 2. Look what he says. Let my prayer come before you. Now, why would he have to say that? Allow my prayer to come before you. Does he think God is saying, I'm not going to take that prayer? He's asking God to, to accept his prayer. Do you see that? Let my prayer, accept my prayer as it comes before you. Look, incline your ear to my cry. Give it proper attention. You know, one of the most discouraging things is when you make a request of somebody or you talk to somebody and they don't give your request proper attention. You ever call up somebody and say, hey, they've got a problem here and it's just like you're invisible. They're not hearing you. That's very discouraging. This guy has been praying. Heman's been praying 
And it's like, you know, heaven is brass and he's not getting, he doesn't even know if God's hearing. So he says, please allow my prayer to, to reach your ears. Listen to what I'm, I'm saying. Does that make sense? Look at verse 3. He gives us the reason here. The reason. Because my soul is full of troubles. And the word soul there simply means life. My life is full of troubles. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, occasional trouble. It's full of trouble. Full of trouble. And he goes on to say in verse 3, And my life draws near what? I'm near death. This thing has got me to the point that I, my life is wasting away. It's so much full of trouble. And I am I'm near death. Look at verse 4. How near death are you? <laughs> Look at this. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. That means I am numbered with those who go down to the pit. I'm destined to be one who's going down to the pit. It's going to happen sooner rather than later. You don't answer. See? I am like a man who has no strength. He sees himself as on the edge of death. And uh, the life is draining out of his body and he can't last much longer. In fact, he's so weak at this point that he can't lift his head off of a pillow. Now that's, that's weak. Today we'd say we're putting him in hospice. Now, you know, it used to be a time when I used to like hospice. Oh, isn't that nice to take care of people when you're tired? But you now, when, what do you think when somebody's up? We're putting them in hospice. Uh, now it's a scary thing. I remember three or four months ago it sounded pretty good. Oh, we're going to take care of these people. Come. Now I think, put them in hospice, what are you saying? And they, they can't take care of themselves, they're so weak, you know. And that's what he said, they're ready to put me in hospice. That's how weak I am. That's how close to the grave that I am. Look at verse 5. Look how else he described himself. Adrift. This is great. Adrift among the dead. Adrift among the dead. Like the slain who lie in the grave. Uh, he's describing a battlefield where soldiers have been mowed down in action and they are dead and they're lying there maybe in a mass grave. Now he uses the word adrift. He's talking adrift like a person in this situation. Some translations said free. And uh, what it describes uh, is a, a soldier or soldiers who have uh, been killed in action and now they've been stripped. They've been stripped of their weapon. They've been stripped of their wallet. They've been stripped of their boots. They've been stripped maybe of their dog tags by the enemy. And all this amounts to the spoils of battle for the enemy who killed them. And that's what he sees himself. He sees himself as somebody who's been mowed down and cast off like a soldier who has lost all of his possessions body just strewn on the battlefield, you know, free of all the things that he used to own. So he sees himself, even though he's still stopping, he sees himself as good as dead. Now this causes him to level some charges against God. And he levels four or five charges against God. So I want to look at these charges that he levels against God. This is how bad he feels, and so he starts the blame game. You ready? Look at charge number one. Whom you what? Remember no more. And who are caught, cut off 
from your hand. He said, I'm not even on your radar anymore. It's like I don't exist, that you don't even know that I'm alive, you've just given up, and as a result, I'm, I'm as dead as they come. I mean, death is a surety. That's charge number one, I'm not on your radar. Look at charge number two, verse six. You have laid me in the lowest pit. Some translations say they, but it doesn't make sense when you look at it and think you is the best translation. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness and in the depths. So you're the one that's put me here. Because, you know, you could have answered me, didn't answer. That means that you're responsible for this. Now, in Psalm 23, David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art... But he said, you're not with me. You know where to be found. You're not even looking. See, this is a guy who is in you know, desperate need. And so his charge number two is, you're responsible for this. Look at charge number three, down in verse seven. Your wrath, meaning your fury. Your fury lies heavy upon me. And you have afflicted me with all your waves. He says this is God's doing. What he's experiences is the fury of God. It's like a it's like a wild ocean. It's the waves are you know raising up and you just it's in it's just fury you know and the waves come and he says this is what he says at the end of verse seven. You've afflicted me with all your waves. How many waves? All your waves. This guy doesn't have a chance. It's like you know being in the ocean. You go out and suddenly a wave hits you. Knocks you back. You weren't expecting it. And then another wave hits you. And then another wave, and they keep getting bigger. And finally, you get knocked down. You lose your footing. And you try to get up. And you get up, you get knocked down again. And finally, you slip, and the waves just overtake you. And that's it for you. That's how he sees himself. He sees himself as a drowning man. And it's God's waves that are coming over him. He's on the road to drowning. And he puts Selah there. Do you see that? Just think about it. Now, the phrase Selah is a, a, a word that is, that is meant to instruct the choir leader and the singers and the orchestra. He might be saying, you know, put a little pause in here so when the audience sings this, they'll think about how bad things really can get in certain situations. Even though you're the people of God, even though God is the God of the covenant, just think about how things can happen. You need to, look, we have people in our class and Christians all their lives and not getting any better. You wonder why? You need to think about that. What are you going to do when it happens to you? Think about that. Say love. That's what it means. Pause for a moment. You know, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean Everything's going to be good. It's going to be times when things are not going to be so good. So then he levels a fourth charge against God. Look at verse 8. You've put away all my acquaintances far from me. Look at that. You've driven them away. You've made me an abomination to them. I am shut up. But today we say, I'm a shut in. Look, I'm all by myself. And I can't get out. He's been forsaken by his friends, by his acquaintances. 
And now he must face this crisis in solitude. He must face this crisis alone. Uh, and this is typical of people who are chronically ill. or So it, it's very interesting how your acquaintances, how your friends many times, many of your friends, will abandon you when you're going through a difficult time. Not a, not a minor sickness, but just let it be one that goes on and on and on. They don't want to hear it anymore. They get tired. They just stay away from you. Or you end up losing your job and you've been unemployed for about a year or two. Boy, you don't see your friends coming around. They don't want to hear about how you can't get a job. And they don't do anything they can to help you. Or you go bankrupt. Oh, boy. Your friends abandon you. And he said, this is what's happened. I'm like Job, in a sense. All my friends... Oh, they gave me some advice up front, but now you know, they're just sort of abandoning me. And uh, so this is why I think that this is indeed the saddest psalm in the Bible. I'm shut up and I can't get out. Uh, and he uses the word uh, that uh, the word abomination. People don't, they look upon him as, oh, no, not him again. You know, one of those types of things. People look at verse 9. My eyes waste away because of my affliction. My eyes waste away because of my sickness. Things are getting dim for him. Either literally or metaphorically. Either way, things are not bright. Right? So things are getting dark. So that finishes up section number one. Now we come to section number two. Now, in section one, he leveled those charges. Now he asked God a series of questions in section two. Look at verse 9b, right in the middle of verse 9. Open section two. Lord, I have called daily upon you and have stretched out my hands to you. That's a reiteration, basically, of verse one. And this is followed by a whole series of rhetorical questions whose answers are obvious, in a sense. Okay, so look at verse 10. Here comes the first question. Will you work wonders for the dead? And the answer is no. When you're dead, dead people don't see wonders. <laughs> the wonders are over <laughs> for a dead person. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead rise and praise you? When you have a funeral the next week, do you happen to see them walk down Main Street just saying, praise the Lord? No, dead people don't praise anybody. So he's asking these questions. He said, just think about that. And you know, Dead people don't see the wonders of the Lord. Dead people don't praise you. Lord, why would you let me die? If I were alive, I could see your greatness and your majesty and your glory, and I could tell people about it. Praise you, but if you let me die, that hurts you as much as it hurts me. Look at verse 11. Shall your loving kindness, that's the covenant kind of love God has for his people, shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? No. Uh... Dead people aren't talking about God's loving kindness, witnessing to God's kindness. Or your faithfulness in the place of destruction. No. If I die, I can't talk about your faithfulness. In fact, I might talk about your unfaithfulness. You let me die, you see, if I could talk. No. Maybe verse 12. Shall your wonders be known in the dark? No. And your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Where dead people are? No. Dead people are silent. 
And if you allow me to die, I won't be able to witness. I won't be able to praise. I won't be able to declare your greatness and your glory. Lord, listen to me. I need some help. I'm close to the end. If I die, it's, it's not good for your reputation. You're the God who's the covenant God. In fact, didn't he say that in verse... He uses the word, he uses that uh, in verse 9, in middle of verse 9. Uh, notice uh, how he addresses God. L-O-R-D, all capitals, right? Covenant Lord. See? I've called on you daily. I've been expecting an answer. You know, if you let me die, I won't be able to do this. It's going to kill your reputation. Which leads to section 3, verse 13. And notice what he says there. But to you, I've cried out. Look at this. Oh, Lord, all caps. Jehovah God, covenant God, I've called out to you. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. Even though he's on the verge of death, he doesn't give up. He perseveres in prayer. And he does it in the morning. Because he says, every morning I do it, every day he sees a new possibility, a new day, a new opportunity, uh, a new hope to be fully restored. He's expecting divine help. And if you look how each section opens in verse 1, he says, I cry out day and night. Day and night I cry out. Look at verse 9. I cry out daily. Daily. See that? Verse 13. I cry out in the morning. I mean, this guy's praying all the time. And he, every morning when he wakes up, he sees it as a day full of possibilities and a day when divine help will come. And so he asks a question. Lord, and this is the big question, why do you cast off my soul? Why are you not responding? Why are you going to let me die? You know, that's, that is the big question. Because you're the covenant God. You're not supposed to do this. Why are you doing it? He doesn't understand. And he goes and he gives a whole litany. And he says, and why do you hide your face from me? You're not supposed to hide your face from me. I'm one of your children. Why do you do that? I don't understand it. Why are you going to allow me to die? So now he gives this litany of all these problems. Beginning in verse 15. Look what he says. Verse 14. Is it 14 or 15? Verse 15. I have been afflicted and ready to die, look at this, from my youth. This has been a lifelong illness. This is not one where you got sick last week or last month or last year. He's had this problem for years. <laughs> I mean, and it's been a life and death situation for years, for years. You remember uh, Lance Welding who came and spoke to the class uh, a couple years ago in a wheelchair. He has spinal bifida. And since he's just been a little kid, he, I mean, he was born that way. And from the time he was born, up and out, every day is life and death. He could be in the hospital tomorrow, and many times he's been in the hospital and expecting to get through in these past two years, a couple times like that. And that's what this, and he, I, I'm sure that, that Lance says, Lord, why don't you do something? I, you've healed people in the Bible who were crippled. You could heal me, can't you? Why? You know, and he's out there preaching the gospel. I mean, faithfully. This guy goes out and does evangelism in a wheelchair. 
takes care of his wife. And I'm sure he's been saying many times, Lord, if you let me die here in Baylor Hospital, I won't be able to witness for you tomorrow. Can you feel that? Can you see what this guy's going through? Look, it's from his youth that he's had this problem, verse 15. I suffer your terrors. Look, he, he labels God a terrorist. In a sense. You know, it'd be one thing if my enemies were trying to kill me, but, you know, it's like you're trying to kill me. I'm suffering at your behest. Look at this. I'm distraught. I'm in a state of despair. I'm beside myself. I don't know what to do. See? Verse 16. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Just look like those waves again. Your terrors have cut me off. I'm enveloped by, by trouble, by sickness. It just envelops my whole being and and I'm, I'm cut off, I'm isolated, I'm, I'm, you know, left to fend for myself. There's no one around me to help me. What am I, what can I do? So, yeah, it's a, it's a really amazing song of a, a broken heart who's seeking help and he's not getting it. Look at verse 17. They came around me, that's all these terrors and all these problems. They, they came around me all day long like water they've engulfed me all together just like you know I'm sunk <laughs> you put it that way I'm sunk loved one and friend you have put far from me I'm isolated and I'm deserted and my acquaintances in the darkness now that last phrase can be interpreted two ways, or translated two ways. It can mean my acquaintances that you put off have walked away from me into the night, never to be seen again. <laughs> or it can mean my only acquaintance is darkness. The only friend I have left. <laughs> All my friends have walked away. The only friend and acquaintance I have is darkness. Now, I don't know which one it means. You know something? I do know this. He's describing a state of depression. He's enveloped by darkness. And he is in a state, he's in a dark place, the dark night of the soul, and he is in a place of depression. And however you interpret that last part of that verse 18, there's one thing I know. That the last word in the psalm And there's no indication that this prayer has been answered or will ever be answered. And that's how it ends. The prayer, the psalm ends in darkness. And so this is one of those great psalms that put forth the truth that sometimes bad things happen to good people and there's just no answer why. And there's no answer why God uh, doesn't respond. Life for this man and life for a lot of people sometimes has a very sad end. So what can we conclude by reading this psalm? Number one, 
This guy's a servant. This guy's a minister in the house of the Lord. This is a good guy. This isn't some rascal out there. He served God all his life. Number two, he doesn't give up even though God doesn't answer. The next morning, which would be verse 19 of this verse, he gets up and prays again. And uh, he doesn't give up. And I want you to know, we must not give up. I don't care what the situation is. I don't care how chronic the illness is. I don't care how long it's gone on. We must never give up because we serve a God who's established a covenant, a new covenant with us through Christ. And we must never give up. We must pray and trust that God is the God of our salvation, the God who will deliver us. But sometimes I want you to realize that this deliverance, and it may be the case for this man, the deliverance doesn't come in this lifetime. But I don't want you to fall into the other trap to look at death as the deliverance. Death is not the deliverance. Death is an enemy, isn't it? Death is not the deliverance. The deliverance comes at the resurrection. When that body that has been crippled and decayed is raised up to be whole once again at the Lord's return. That's called the blessed hope. That is the ultimate healing and the ultimate deliverance. When you enter the kingdom of God in a whole body and evil and sickness is eradicated. So that's the hope that this man has in the resurrection, even if the answer doesn't come in this lifetime. And that's the hope that we have. Every one of us in this room will die. Unless the Lord would happen to come before we die, we're going to die. And you know, sickness is going to get one of, going to get every one of us one way or the other. And we're going to have people in this class, and your family, and friends, and yourself going to be crying out for a deliverance. And it won't come in this lifetime. But I want to assure you, that the deliverance will come when Christ returns and the dead in Christ are raised back to life. And we inherit the earth. Heaven is on earth. That's what my whole book's about. Heaven on earth. Now, there's one more thing I want to say. Some people read this psalm Christologically. Christologically means you want to find Christ in the psalm. And some people say, you know, when you read this song, you can almost hear the voice of Jesus, the suffering servant, who cries out to God for deliverance. And guess what? The deliverance doesn't come. Forsaken by man, forsaken by God, all the evil powers against him, and they put him to death and say, that's it. So three days later, God raised him from the dead. And he's totally restored and delivered. Takes his seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and gives us the assurance that resurrection is ours as well. So that's Psalm 88. It is a psalm for the chronic Leo. Next week, Psalm 89. Lord, we thank you for a, a very interesting psalm. Uh, one that uh, we can all relate to. We've known people who have been in difficult times for years. 
Help us not to be the kind of acquaintances that we see in these verses. When our friends are hurting, help us to be those who are there to give them hope, encourage them, hold their hand, pray for them, be a constant uh, friend in time of need. And then, Lord, help us to realize that there's a bigger plan than just this life. There is this present age, but there's an age to come. But the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of your Christ. And paradise lost is paradise restored. And heaven comes down. And the kingdom is on earth. We look forward to that day in Christ's name. Amen.